0: Robert J. Sternberg is the professor of human development at Cornell University and an honorary professor of psychology at the University of Heidelberg. He is a past winner of the Grom Mayer Award in Psychology and the William James and James McKean Cadell Awards of the Association for Psychological Science. Sternberg has served as president of the American Psychological Association and the Federation of Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences. His latest book is Adaptive Intelligence, Surviving and Thriving in Times of Uncertainty.
1: Professor Robert J Sternberg, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. You've won awards for your work and research on intelligence, creativity, wisdom, thinking styles, leadership, your reflections on love, jealousy, envy, and and other emotions. Your most recent book is the Adaptive Intelligence Surviving and Thriving in Times of Uncertainty. What drew you to study adaptive intelligence and how can it lead humankind on a more positive path?
2: During the 20th century, James Flynn, recently deceased, who was a scholar at the University of Otago in New Zealand, found that IQs went up 30 points. So that's incredible, you know, 30 points in 100 years. That's like the difference between being average and being gifted or the difference between being average and being borderline mentally challenged. And yet, if you look at people's ability to solve basic life problems as opposed to IQ test problems, one wonders where those 30 points are. We seem to be losing in the conflict against global climate change. The pandemic, COVID 19, pretty much outwitted us for a long time. It's still outwitting some people. Pollution is on the increase. Income disparities are ridiculous. They're billionaires who have nothing better to do than fly into outer space for checkoffs on their CVs while other people are starving and homeless. There are wars being fought in Ukraine and other places because of a dictator's whims. The narcissism of one dictator is enough to result in tens of thousands and probably more of deaths, just as it was in World War II. I mean, you know, you would have thought that we would have advanced from Nazi Germany, but it doesn't seem like things have changed that much. So I started to wonder what happened to all those IQ points. What good were 30 IQ points if our ability to solve serious problems, not standardized problems, not what's the number in this series or what's the cosine of something or what does the word assuage mean, but real problems, if we can't seem to do that. And then are we looking at intelligence wrong? There are an awful lot of people who have graduated from top schools in the United States, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, or great schools in other countries who become leaders who are worse than incompetent. They make their countries worse rather than better. And the conclusion I came to is that we made a mistake, that intelligence was originally defined by the founders of the field, Alfred Binet, David Wexler, and others, as the ability to adapt to the environment. And answering a vocabulary problem for an obscure word is not about adapting to the environment. Most of the words you never see in the environment. Solving complex geometry problems that you'll never again encounter in your life after high school. That doesn't seem like adaptive intelligence either. So I began to wonder where we lost the train of thought. And the conclusion I came to is that psychologists forgot the original message of the founders of the field. They got immersed in the numbers. It's very tempting to get immersed in numbers because it's easier to get publications. It makes you feel scientific. It makes people think, wow, you really know what you're doing. And so we got immersed in these numbers that turn out not to mean that much. And so I wrote about intelligence as adaptation, as the ability to get along in the world and hopefully make the world a little bit better. And somehow that concept has gotten lost. And what I argue in the book is that we not only need to develop this kind of intelligence, we need to recognize that it's important. Getting A's in school and top scores on standardized tests, that's not what intelligence is about. And as you can see from some of our billionaires, it's certainly not making about making money. I mean, like some of them seem to rejoice in being intellectual clowns. So what is it about? And there are people who make serious efforts to make the world better, who fight pollution, who try to be good at what they do, you know, as judges or as lawyers or as cleaning people or as car mechanics or as doctors. But those aren't the ones you hear about. The ones you hear about are often those who have prestigious degrees and can't seem to do much with them. So that was the motivation for the book, that we went off track and were sending to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Oxford and the University of Paris. A lot of kids whose parents are wealthy who can afford to give them the kind of upbringing that will propel them in the direction of prestigious universities. But often the main thing they care about is that their life will be good and not that they'll make the world better for not only for others in their generation, but for their own kids. I mean, like if the temperatures keep going up, if a country goes autocratic, as a number of countries have lately, and ours, the United States soon may. Is that the world you want for your children? Is that adaptive, even in a Darwinian sense of preparing the world for the next generation? I don't think so. So that's the motivation.
1: Yeah, exactly. Intelligence is something that's collective or individual. It seems that there had been this emphasis on the individual, the individual achievement, the idea that you think alone and you achieve alone, and that doesn't do well for society or even your own children if they have to worry about their own extinction or spend all that money that they've earned protecting themselves because of other existential risks.
2: And one of the things I discussed in the book and in some of my articles is that intelligence Intelligence is a concept, as we know it, mostly evolved in individualistic societies. So we have this notion that you should take a test, you do it by yourself. If someone helps you, you're cheating. But there are very few serious real world problems that are solved individually. And if they are, they're usually not solved well. And the more you try to solve them without seeking input, if you look at dictators, they usually are really bad leaders. We've got a few of them right now. They don't make good decisions because they surround themselves by yes men. And if they make a mistake, no one has the guts to tell them because they know they'll lose their job and maybe go to prison or worse. So, yeah, I think it's important to make intellectual decisions, not only individually, but in groups, but in serious groups not in groups where the people are handpicked to say, yes, I agree, because that's their only choice. And the other thing, that collectivism isn't the answer, because in collectivist societies, if you get a very charismatic, pseudo-transformational leader, as we have in some very highly populated countries today, they can convince a lot of people that To support the country should support me, when in fact you're only supporting the dictator. You're not supporting the country. You're not doing anything for yourself. What you're doing is entrenching the power of the dictator and the people who follow him. I say him because it's virtually always a him and not a her.
1: Yeah, and in many countries, this word socialism, as it's been implemented, is flawed. But when we have the serious resource problems, and it's only getting worse, and I don't like to be negative, but we have it on various fronts from water insecurity, food insecurity, you mentioned, of course, climate change, and all these related issues, we do have to consider these collectivist or socialist or cooperative solutions.
2: Yeah, I think what happens in the United States is that politics have become so cynical and so dishonest that the words are just thrown around to scare people. The politics in many countries, including my own, especially of one of the parties, is simply a politics of fear and anger. Scare them, make them angry. And to some extent, both parties in the United States are doing that. So I think that it's not about whether the word is socialism or collectivism. It's really that at this point, given the way things are going, if we don't look for a common good, we'll destroy humanity. We can't keep doing this. The temperatures can't keep getting higher. The water shortages can't keep increasing. The storms can't keep getting worse. There's parts of the world that are already getting flooded. Is that the future we want? And I hope it's not. But people are so attuned to the short term and to individual gains that I worry about what kind of future the world has.
1: So you and your colleagues have developed adaptive intelligence tests, and I would love to see that taught more in schools. I mean, you've done so much research into how we might improve our education models, but tell us a bit about the adaptive intelligence tests.
2: Yeah, Well, I was actually just before we went on reading an article on the results of one of our adaptive intelligence tests, and they're quite good. But I think that a mistake that the field of abilities has made, and that applies to intelligence and creativity as well, is in its desire to superficially appear to be scientific. There's this emphasis on measurement. Yeah. And of course you have to measure things, but often the measurements are trivial. So the problem isn't measurement, it's that you're measuring things that don't matter. So what we do is we give people real world problems. We have them read about real water shortages or income disparities or pollution. We point out that people have different views on these kinds of things, that sometimes what works in the short term doesn't work in the long term or vice versa. And we asked them how they would recommend to leaders that they go about solving problems. And we don't only look at these sort of macro problems. We look at problems you can have in a community or in a family, on an athletic team. But the adaptively intelligent person isn't just looking out for him or herself. They're not just looking out for people like them. I think the biggest problem today isn't individualism, but tribalism. At least in our country, it's become extremely tribal. And you've got these almost two warring factions who view each other with disdain. Sometimes almost it seems like hate, but you know, contempt, disgust, that doesn't point to a positive future. You can't live that way. You just can't. Go on that way and keep a country intact. And we're not. The United States isn't keeping the country intact.
1: And you brought up politics. So I want to ask about Ukraine touching everyone in Europe. Do you have reflections on this? I mean, it's very hard to imagine a way out.
2: Yeah. Severe disadvantage today is that the people who are alive were not around during World War II. So one of the lessons of World War II and of earlier history is that narcissists don't stop with their first conquest. You know, most pseudo-transformational leaders are are narcissists. That means that they give these high-falutin speeches about how they're fulfilling the destiny of the country and this is what is made for us to do. You know, the Putin kind of BS that's manufactured by some speechwriter, maybe by him, who cares, but they don't stop. And so the reason Ukraine is so important, the same problem that Chamberlain didn't realize during World War II. It doesn't stop with the first country. You know, people said, well, give Hitler the first country and he'll be appeased. That doesn't happen. There's always one more. And so if you don't fight back, you end up with the course of the world being determined by a narcissist. And it can be pretty dicey which way it goes. Germany might have won World War II. And Stanley Milgram, Phil Zimbardo, and others have shown how easily even intelligent people will fall in line. They don't want to rock the boat. They're obedient. It's disappointing, but in the Milgram experiment, two-thirds of the people were willing to go to the top level of shock. That was supposedly a learning experiment, but it was really an obedience experiment. And that result has been replicated many times that people tend to be obedient, including smart people. So what we need to be developing is not people's ability to solve cosine problems or remember obscure words, but how do you deal with a world that is falling apart and in which people are suffering? And our ability to handle those problems is poor, I think in part because our education system is so grossly inadequate and tied to the sort of academic notion of memorize a bunch of books and you get an A and you get your degree. And that's not what the world needs now. And I think that's pretty clear. You could memorize an English-German dictionary. It doesn't mean you can speak German or English. You could memorize a psychology textbook. It doesn't mean you can apply psychology to the world. And our notions about education are just much too academically absorbent rather than developing leaders who will make the world a better place.
1: Yes, and as you say, also the way many of these systems and technologies are designed, also they rewards often bad behavior or attention getting, novelty seeking, these kind of things. You know, we tend to be obedient. So the importance of teaching us pathways of moderate dissent, how to voice and identify when something's wrong. These are pretty heavy concepts to say introduce at the k through twelve level, but when you see the world is falling apart. We don't want to teach that to our children, but then we know that they really have to learn how to be adaptive and resilient.
2: There are a couple of things that I think are really important. One is I know one of your foci mm-hmm. in your podcast is on creativity. And for years, I wrote about creativity. I developed programs for teaching creativity in the schools. I was very, active as they still am in the field. And I've come to the conclusion that the way others and I conceptualize the field was wrong. And what was wrong is that creativity is usually defined in terms of ideas that are novel, that are new, and that are somehow effective, but there's nothing in there about there being good. And so... What's happened is you were just talking about the reward system. The reward system today actually very much favors negative creativity and what my colleague Todd Lubart at the University of Paris and I call creativity without integrity. So negative creativity is where it's like the people go to a social media company and they're paid very large amounts of money to figure out ways to get people to click more on this or that simply to increase ad revenue. And the people know that they're doing bad stuff, but they get locked into this is where the money is. So do we want creativity to be used for bad purposes? In the United States, it's very much being used for bad purposes. I mean, we're on the verge where we could become a dictatorship in a couple of years. So I've put more emphasis, not on creativity per se, but on what I call transformational creativity, which is creativity that tries to transform the world to be a better place. And the other thing that's important is the integrity of the creativity, and that is that you're not using creativity in the service of lies. Much of the creativity in advertising is now being used to lie, to appeal to people's anger about the economy, their anger about foreigners, people who believe that the country is really theirs and that other people, you know, what are they doing here? And so politicians are targeting ads to people who feel like, you know, your country's been stolen from me. I mean, that's one of the oldest lines in the book, you know, of pseudo populists. but it still works. So we need creativity that's positive, that makes the world a better place.
1: Yes. And it very much depends on which realm you're speaking of, like in the realm of the arts, the novelty or new variations, sometimes too much creativity in the design world. When we have so many options, we have to think of ways to scale it back so that our technologies are more in line with nature. Sometimes that involves a certain element of saying, I'm not going to introduce something new. I'm going to learn how to reuse something that's already made. And so but it's difficult to tell designers and inventors that when they want to put their new items into the world, when already human made products already outweigh life on this planet, we have to scale that back.
2: Yeah, like these days with hotel alarm clocks, it's at least for me, it's not even worth the bother of trying to figure out how they work. They have so many features and so many buttons, and all I want to do is set the alarm.
1: And so you spoke about the issue of our education system. You must know so many wonderful teachers, but another part of it is that they may start off with having so much energy, but we don't value our teachers, at least at certain levels. I feel the way that they should be valued in terms of the great importance of their role. Teachers are confidence builders and instrumental in helping us to think differently. They're the cornerstone of development and examples of what it means to be a caring and empathic human being.
2: Yeah, I certainly agree with that. Teachers are way undervalued. In the United States, they're way underpaid. And so many of the best ones leave because they can't make ends meet or don't go into teaching because it's so lacking in being lucrative. Yeah. Part of the problem is that we don't reward them enough. And part of the problem is we reward them for the wrong things because so much in my country, at least, we've gotten into testing. And often testing things that really don't matter very much. So when your job or your salary depend on test scores, you tend to teach to the test no matter how trivial what the test measures is. So instead of teaching kids world valuable skills, you teach them skills that will get them better scores on the test, even if they are not skills that are very much important to the kids' lives.
1: And on this point of adaptive intelligence and the results of those valuable tests, because it's really how we can have better lives and collaborate and have more positive societies. In your findings, as you compare approaches from different countries, because I know your colleagues come from different parts of the world, right? You have different societies have a more collectivist approach. What are your findings as you compare different cultures?
2: I think what is for the common good at some level, it's if people who are reasonable, critical thinkers who are knowledgeable but about the world get together, they can see it. What's hard often is to balance your own good with the common good. And there is no one answer to that. I have several friends who are Iranian and collaborators. How do you balance off that you might be outside Iran, but you have family in Iran and they have a very brutal government? I mean, they kill kids, you know. How do you balance off the need to make the world a better place with, I have family there and I sure would like to see them. It's hard. The hardest thing today, I think, I've been writing lately about courage Because I think so much of the challenge of today is having the courage to try to make things better when pseudo-populism and authoritarianism have been on the rise. And many people feel like, I just better keep my head down. These are the real problems people are facing. And I think some people would listen to this podcast and think it's political, but that's where life is today. I mean, you know, uh, Israel just elected a very, very right wing government, you know, is intelligence just about IQ tests? Or is it about what does this mean for the future of that country and for the people in it, including those who have been disadvantaged?
1: Yes. It's not so much political, it's just about the quality of our lives and taking a more active role in it. So you say in terms of improving our education systems, having civics taught at an earlier age, more in depth, it doesn't seem to be always the focus. You brought up the point of technology. You know, there's two sides of that coin. Some in Taiwan are using it as to be a very participatory government with a minister of technology, Audrey Tang, and participants can log into that and be voting, not just during elections, but on different aspects of how they're governed constantly. So I think that's positive, but we have to increase our governance of it. So it isn't just something used to uh, manipulate us to click and like and shop.
2: I totally agree with you. Most technology has a positive side and a negative side and seeking a common good is about taking advantage of its positive side while trying to mitigate the harmful aspects of it. The problem is that the money often is associated with the harmful side and not always with the good side. Taiwan is also a good example because it's a country where, you know, a traditional construction of intelligence today probably wouldn't be enough. I mean, you know, you can build up all these great things, but if you're under a severe threat that you're going to be crushed, you also have to think about what, how are we going to deal with that threat? And that's part of adaptive intelligence not just getting good grades or coming up with the next semiconductor, but what if a neighbor decides it's mine?
1: And this issue, which is really the core of your... Different books and projects of how do we cultivate wisdom seems to be something that we have to be more vigilant about in relation to technology as it's affecting many people the way they think and perceive the world. and If you're using it too much, it's in some ways rewiring our brain if we're susceptible or don't know anything before the digital age.
2: Yes, I think that's true. It's certainly rewired our brains and unfortunately created a reward system that often rewards the worst aspects of ourselves. The negative tweets and the negative postings are the ones that attract the most attention and tend to generate the most emotion, anger, and sometimes hate. And so we now find ourselves having to deal with the world very different from what it was even 10 years ago.
1: And so you've written also in The Psychology of Wise Thoughts, Words and Deeds, how do we teach and test for the development of wisdom? And how is your own, if you look back to when you first started reflecting on what intelligence is, how has your view of it changed over the years?
2: When I first studied intelligence while well, I was a child, I did poorly on an IQ test. So I wanted to understand uh, why I did poorly. But my first serious studies were in graduate school. And I thought at the time that the problem with intelligence tests was that the psychometric model, this measurement model, doesn't tell you about the mental processes people use in solving problems requiring intelligence. So you could have somebody who is very good at verbal comprehension, but doesn't have a big vocabulary because English isn't their first language, or they grew up in a lower- SES socioeconomic status home, where there wasn't that much language tossed around. And so that's what I believe in my thesis, which was published as a book in 1977, that it was that we didn't understand mental processes. By 1985, I would concluded that I'd made a mistake and that the problem was actually not just that we don't understand processes, but that our conception of intelligence was too narrow, that it was too much based on memory and analytical thinking, and that it didn't incorporate creative and practical thinking. And that to be intelligent in the world, you need to be creative and you need to have common sense. There are a lot of high IQ people who don't have much common sense. Some would say I'm one of them. And then by the 1990s, concluded that I still didn't have it right because what really matters most is not just having a balance of analytical, creative, and practical skills, but figuring out how to deploy them, how to capitalize on what you're really good at and compensate for or correct things you're not so good at. And then by 2003, I'd come to the conclusion that the model was still incomplete because it didn't include wisdom. So I sort of taught, and wisdom is not, it's not practical intelligence. Practical intelligence is looking out for yourself. The people were very practically intelligent at making a lot of money, so I added wisdom to the theory. And then came the adaptive intelligence phase, which I first published about in 2019, which is that you need something more than that. You need to make the world a better place, because at least for humanity, it's in decline. For viruses and bacteria and cockroaches, they're doing fine, but humanity isn't doing fine. In my most recent work, which is not published yet, it's under review, is that I came to the conclusion I still made a mistake because a lot of intelligence isn't even in your abilities. It's in your attitude toward life. The problem today isn't that people don't have the intelligence. They don't choose to use it. If they applied critical thinking, if they really thought about what some of these politicians are saying, to see it doesn't make sense, they just don't want to think too much. So a lot of intelligence is just seeking alternative points of view, verifying information, Asking yourself whether what you believe is supported by facts and to a large extent are falling for pseudo transformational leaders is because either we don't want to ask or because we've never really been taught to ask questions about how should we think about things. So I think a lot of the problem today is attitude that very, even very smart people know they're being fed a lie. They just don't want to think about it too much.
1: I think that it comes down also to they may be aware vaguely. We always feel like we know more than we do. <laughs> we, could, we have know from the outside, but they feel powerless. And I think that for even very you know intelligent and capable people and those who are able to ask those questions and are even good collaborators or leaders in their own field, that to really make that effective change, they would have to enter that. And some people don't want to, if I can use strong language, contaminate themselves, you have to harden yourself, you have to really compete on that level.
2: I was just having a conversation with someone else about that earlier this morning, the feeling of impotence, that there's nothing I can do anyway. And I understand that because I often feel that way myself. And there have been times like I just feel like giving up and the reminder someone once gave me that I would give other people is that you don't really fail until you stop trying and so even if you're trying in a small domain and you realize that you may not get that far the other option is to let the world keep going the way it is and that's not a good option either it's better at least to try the best you can knowing that the contribution You make maybe small, but it still could make a difference. That you're part of a solution rather than part of the problem because you're opting out.
1: And I very much how you described your changing perspective, your evolving nuanced perspective on what intelligence is, because really it's, if you describe that it's adaptive, your ideas about it has have adapted over the years. And it's so encouraging to see that because a lot of times we just like want to know something, learn it, it's fixed, it's done. And then I don't want to think about it again. So it's really important that we're always questioning ourselves, even about the things that we think that we know.
2: Yeah. In my triangular theory of creativity. I say there are three elements of creativity that are really important. One, which was from the early work with Todd Lubart, is defying the crowd. You don't just go along with what other people say because they say it. A second that is defying the zeitgeist or not just doing things because all your friends, it seems like you have to do it. I mean, that's just the way the world works. But the most important one is probably defying yourself. I've thought this way for 20 years, so I'm not going to let it go. You have to constantly, I know I was thinking about my own field. Most theorists of intelligence, they come up with a theory when they're 25, 30, 35, and they pretty much stick with it. But scientific theories are all wrong. Certainly psychological ones are. And if you stay with a theory too long, you stop being creative because you think you've found the answer. And as soon as you think you've found the answer, you're not creative because what's going to be creative, right? You know the answer. And certainly in psychology, that's never true. We just never quite know the answer. So my uh, career trajectory has been trying to improve on theories, realizing that they'll still be inadequate, but hopefully better than they were before.
1: Yes exactly that is the big you know intelligence trap coming up with a theory and then making everything <laughs> fit it even though yeah. the world is changing and so as you look back to some of these important theorists about intelligence if you look back to other thinkers like the stoics how are you in conversation with their insights into wisdom in
2: terms of wisdom, there are a number of very active and good theorists of wisdom. Judith Gluck, who is my collaborator from Austria, is very good. Igor Grossman from Canada, I think, is very good. Smund from Germany, uh, Monica Ardelt in the United States. We don't all agree, but that's okay. The biggest problem is not disagreement; it's converging prematurely, as happened in the IQ testing business. The IQ testing business, unfortunately, maybe was too dominated by people with high IQs, who I don't think it's been a very creative field. And Charles Spearman came up with an idea in 1904, and most of the field has been elaborations of what Spearman wrote, which seems like if you're still working in a paradigm that was started over a century ago, you have to at least ask yourself, is it possible you're missing something? If we were using early 20th century medicines to fight cancer, maybe we would want to think about whether we missed something somewhere.
1: Yes. And I think that you can't uh, underestimate the importance of simplicity and intelligence, humility, and maybe not always overvalue what this idea, and it's very elusive, and it depends on what your definition is, but of of genius. You know, we often look for that, the big star names and things like that. But there is a real intelligence to almost being invisibly intelligent.
2: Beware of gurus. Anyone who uh, is trying to present him or herself as a guru, you have to be very skeptical. There have been a lot of those in psychology, and their ideas last for some number of years, and then they turn out to be not nearly as good as the ideas seem to be. I think your point about intellectual humility is very wise, that we don't know that much, and when we start thinking we do, we're in trouble.
1: And you've also applied your analytical skills to love as well, something that it's very hard to be objective about.
2: Yes, I have a theory of love that is correct. So the basic idea is that love has three components, intimacy, passion and commitment. Intimacy is sort of like the friendship stuff, your closeness, your connection, your trust, your feeling of somehow mutual reliance, passion. Everyone knows what that is, your excitement and that you can't live without them and that, wow, this is just mind-blowing and commitment is that you're in it for good. And different combinations of those three elements, intimacy, passion, and commitment feel different kinds of love so intimacy by itself is friendship. Passion by itself is infatuation. Commitment by itself is what I call empty love. Intimacy plus passion is romantic love, sort of Romeo and Juliet thing. Intimacy plus commitment is companionate love. It's sort of a long-term intimate relationship. Passion plus commitment is foolish or fatuous love. It's love without the intimacy. And if you have all three, it's complete or consummate love in underlying these triangles, they're stories. So people have stories about love. And that is, that means the two people can say they love each other, but mean really quite different things. So if you have a fairy tale story, you're looking for a prince or a princess, and your idea of love is that it's like a nice fairy tale. If you have a business story, your idea about love is you find a business partner. If you have a travel story, your idea is that you're two people traveling together through time and trying to stay on the same road. And then there's some not so great stories like the horror story where there is a perpetrator and a victim or a police story where there's a police officer and a criminal. So I do some of this work now with my wife, Karen Sternberg. Uh, She has a website, lovemultiverse.com. And what we try to do now, especially Karen, is help people improve their love lives by analyzing the kind of love they have and whether it's working for them. Because sometimes you love someone else, but not in a way that is self-sustaining. You realize it may have worked five years ago, but it doesn't work now or you've grown apart. So that's kind of the focus of our work, especially Karen's, is on: do you stay together or you call it quits?
0: My name's Noelle Hoff, and I'm a mindfulness and visual arts podcaster for The Creative Process. I'm from the University of Boulder, Colorado, and I'm majoring in sociology. For me, the significance and sort of value of art is rooted in this perfect storm between creativity and flow. I was particularly drawn to this episode because I really appreciated Robert J. Sternberg's emphasis on adaptive intelligence, which is one's ability to adapt to the environment requirement. He examines the way our current education system enables our economic system. In some ways, education acts as a barrier in success for those who have little societal, financial, and racial privilege. This system also enables the current political and economic system. By keeping those born in a particular socioeconomic status stuck there. This system, Mia and Sternberg both point out, is measured individually and numerically and is lacking the true foundation of intelligence. So I really appreciate that and found it very authentic and to be true. And now back to the interview
1: so interesting. And I I was reflecting on this the other day, speaking to someone who was early in the startup of Google. We were talking about methodology, about technology, and I was having a reappraisal of the role of matchmakers. You know, maybe there's a methodology of having an outside party, kind of understanding the attributes that two parties might have.
2: Yeah, matchmaker relationships work as well as or better than relationships where people find each other. But that's partly because of expectations. If you're in a matchmaker culture, then your expectation is that's the person you're going to be with. Make it work. Whereas in some other cultures, I found the person I'm going to be with and they better stay the person I want to be with or I'm out of here. So it's a different mentality often.
1: Yeah. But it is interesting, the kind of psychology of love that sometimes we can't understand when we're inside of it. And then there are experts who might be able to apply a more critical eye on those different layers of storytelling. And it's also, as you analyze intelligence, sometimes the lack of emotional intelligence can really derail an otherwise promising life.
2: Yeah, absolutely. If you don't understand how you're feeling or the other person's feeling, And actually, I should say most people don't. We have actually studied that and we've found that when people are asked a bunch of questions about how the other person feels about them, and then the other person is asked the same questions, the correlation between what you think they'll say and what they actually say on a zero-to-one scale is only 0.3. So we actually have a pretty modest idea of how the other person feels about us on average.
1: And that comes to like really being able to observe and being able to listen without thinking of oneself. And that does come back around to this idea of what is wisdom and what is intelligence. And there's been a lot of discussion around learning styles. And I feel that we all have different learning styles. I, I do believe that I believe we can transition between different ones depending on the project at hand. But I feel like a lot of the things that were labeled soft skills really could be some of the harder skills as I think you found in your research as well.
2: Yeah, that's essentially what our lovemultiverse.com website is about. It's about how do you translate what we know about love so that you either can make your relationship better or realize that it's the wrong one for you.
1: Also in this broader conversation about intelligence, about how we can improve our listening and soft skills, this kind of palette of adaptive intelligence.
2: Well, a lot of it is what you just said, it's listening It's not only listening, but it's finding diverse sources to listen to. I think the problem today is not so much that people don't listen, it's that they listen only to people who agree with them. It's very easy to create a life space where everyone you know thinks the way you do, and you start to imagine that people who don't think the way you do must be really seriously flawed to have different views because everyone you know and think highly of shares your views. And that's what's happened in the US. You know, I live in Lansing, New York, and you can go to one part of Lansing and people will mostly agree. You get to another part, they have a different view, and often they have trouble mixing.
1: So, how do we increase the diversity of thought to escape these silos and, and develop new ways of teaching critical thinking?
2: Seek out information from people you don't agree with, listen to them, talk to them. You may decide that they're wrong, but it at least you will have made an effort to understand why they think the way they do.
1: I remember that in America, and I don't know if this is still the case. I remember that there are these busing schemes. This is more about geography, about mixing different people from different neighborhoods. And I don't know if that still takes place or if, you know, that can be also with a carbon. It's not a good idea of putting so much into the atmosphere. Yeah, it's
2: gotten worse. What's happening, I don't think it's about busing, it's that people are moving to communities and states where there's homogeneity of point of view. So in the United States, people who are so-called blue or more liberal are gravitating toward the cities and the coasts, and people who are more red or conservative tend to be moving more toward the South and the Midwest. And that's a bad thing, because it's creates a situation where the people around you pretty much agree with what you believe, even if it's all sort of crap. I mean, if that's what you hear and you hear it all the time and, you know, you hear it from people you respect, you just come to think it must be true.
1: And in your own domain, outside of your immediate research, what are some elements, I guess, also beyond, you know, listening to others who have different perspectives, but in terms of the areas of the arts, or what are some ways that you bring in voices that might introduce new creative pathways in your mind and practice?
2: I think for me personally, I think what has been most helpful is that I'm a collaborator. Like in one of the groups I'm in that we've published some papers, we have me from the United States, and we have two people from Iran, and we have one from Colombia, and we have one from India and one from Belgium. Now, we didn't purposely say, let's create a diverse group, but the group is really diverse. And I find that to be enormously advantageous because it's not superficial diversity. What color is your skin? What ethnic group are you a member of? It's diversity of different cultures and different belief systems, and then trying to find ideas that reflect the combination of our cultural upbringings. I think too much about diversity in the United States has become extremely superficial you know, it's just your surface appearance. And that to me is not the most important aspect of diversity. The most important aspect is that people think differently, not just that you could have two people who are white who think more differently, or two people who are Black who think more differently than one who's white and one who's Black. What's important is the intercultural interchange rather than just of what ethnic group you are, what race you are, what sex you are, what gender you are.
1: Yes. And as Ian Baruma, who's lived around the world, pointed out to me, who presently lives in America, there's a lot of focus on ethnic groups living within America, but not much interest at all of the the countries from which those people originated. So African-American, but no interest in Africa or Asia.
2: I think the concepts of diversity in the U.S. have become very superficial. You know, if you take a white kid, a black kid, an Asian kid, an Hispanic kid, and they all grew up in Palo Alto, California, that's not going to give you the kind of diversity you need to understand different points of view. Or grew up in any one place, it could be anywhere, but you need people who truly represent different cultural backgrounds rather than just different superficial appearances.
1: And you've spoke about your collaborations and your collaborators from around the world. And I was wondering what your own reflections on how language affects what we remember and what we notice and what we feel is important.
2: Well, it's funny you should mention that, because I have just been writing with two collaborators about that very issue. And one of the collaborators is from Chile, and one of the collaborators is from Iran. And what the paper is about is a specific example of that. And that is that so much of our view on intelligence reflects a view that made sense in early 20th century Paris, when Alfred Binet was trying to find kids who would profit more from getting separate instruction rather than being integrated into regular classes in school. And we used the word intelligence, and we stuck with this feature-based notion of intelligence that it became this sort of either IQ or what's sometimes called G, or general intelligence. And because we keep using the word, we keep thinking of it in the same way. Whereas in our studies of folk theories of intelligence, people in different cultures actually have different conceptions of intelligence and need different adaptive skills. We've done studies around the world on the adaptive skills you need to survive And they're very different if you say a Yupik Native American in far west of Alaska living in a village that survives on ice fishing and hunting versus living in inner city New York. And what's sad is that the kid growing up in the Yupik village may have fantastic adaptive skills based on the context in which he or she lives, Uh, like they may be able to go Miles and miles on a dog sled, which someone from New York City never could do, the die. But we sort of impose this early 20th century Parisian notion of intelligence on people from the other cultures and assume that if they're not good at what we decided we value, then they're not that smart. When in fact, they may be much smarter for their environment than we are. And what I think we're finding is that IQ as a measure of adaptivity to our own environment has really become dicey. We're doing such a bad job with it. I don't know what it takes for intelligence researchers to realize that, you know, their publications and their high salaries don't justify a notion of intelligence that doesn't reflect the adaptive demands of today's society. What good is it if you have a high IQ? I remember early in the pandemic, people who had certain political views dying when they easily could have masked. So what good was their IQ when they're dead? And and all it would have taken was probably masking, maybe getting vaccinated. So I I think we've just really gone on the wrong road.
1: And thinking also, not just even within the human realm, because when you were mentioning some other cultures who have a high adaptive intelligence for their particular terrain. We had a conversation recently with the author of The Mind of a Bee, and we think about animal intelligence and they adapt to their environments. And just to think about the simple bee and how they have these internal compasses and can orientate around the sun. And it's kind of inspiring. I'm curious about the difference between the conscious mind and the subconscious. And sometimes the good ideas come up when we're not thinking about them.
2: Yeah, often we do our best work when we incubate. So
1: as you think reflect on education, and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, you know, what are some teachers or life lessons that were important to you to know?
2: I'll tell you the most important life lesson to me. (laughs) When I was a first-year graduate student at Stanford in psychology, my advisor, Gordon Bauer, had his first-year students over to dinner. And after dinner, he asked them what they wanted to study. And everyone knew that he wanted to study semantic memory and he probably wanted his students to study semantic memory. So he asked the first student after dinner, what do you want to study in graduate school? And the first guy said semantic memory, which was what we presumed Gordon wanted to hear. And then he asked the second student, and the second student said semantic memory. And then the third student said semantic memory. And I knew that at least the third student was lying because it already told me his interested in something else. And then he asked the fourth student, that was me, what I wanted to study. And I wanted to study intelligence. I had really no interest in semantic memory. And as you can see from my manner, I think it's really important to be yourself and to be true to yourself. So when he asked me, I said semantic memory, I I sold out. And after I did that, I said to myself that night, I was really humiliated with myself. I mean, no one knew that I was humiliated. So I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to be true to myself. And I'm not going to just do something or think something or try to be something because that's what I think other people want. And that's what I've done. And that's a somewhat costly path because people go after you if you don't play their game. But I think the most important lesson for me is to figure out who you are and be that person and be that person to make the world a better place. So that's what I think is my most important lesson.
1: Well, important message. And thank you, Professor Robert Sternberg, for sharing your insights into adaptive intelligence, resilience, and wisdom in pursuit of the common good, and by helping us understand our minds and collective potential so that we can create positive futures. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and One Planet podcast. Thank you.
0: The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. An associate interviews producer on this episode was Noel Hoff. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Meg N. Hagenbath. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadoulis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.